Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is Liz joining you as usual from Central Virginia and the unceded ancestral lands of the Monica Nation. And I am so glad that you are here today. And hey, I wanted to make a comment, um, explanation about this land acknowledgement, since if you've been listening for a while, you probably heard me say this at the beginning of a lot of these shows, but I don't really tell you why I'm doing this. Um, so the purpose of the land acknowledgement, as I understand it, is to honor the original inhabitants of the land. But for me, it also feels important to acknowledge here on the show out loud um, that my people weren't on the land first. I wasn't here where I am first, that there were original inhabitants on this land dating back 10,000 years, maybe more, and that they were forced off this land um, by my own ancestral people. And I also do it in part because I want you to think about the land that you're on that's supporting you right now in this moment too. Who was there before you? I always put in the show notes how you can find um, whose indigenous lands you might be on. And I think that's a really good step. But you know, I would also be curious what else you can learn. For example, can you find out more about the history of the people that were there first? And can you support them in some way? I know there are indigenous land trusts in different parts of the United States, like California, Massachusetts. There might be more. Um, can you help them by learning about their work or by giving to them financially? And if you can't do that, can you even just spread the word that they exist? So just consider this land acknowledgement that I do an invitation to you to explore a little bit more about where you are. And you can always check the show notes if you want to find out whose land you're on. Okay. And with that, I also have to give a quick plug for my book at the beginning of every episode. So here it is. Um, it's funny. I write notes and uh, I, I don't know why I typed this out because I know what I'm going to say. But anyways, instead of writing my book, I put my boo, my boo, home to her, my book, home to her, walking the transformative path of the sacred feminine is out in the world and ready for you to read it if it would be in your joy to do so. Um, my publisher is Woman Craft Publishing, so amazing woman-owned business. So if you do want to read it, I would encourage you to consider buying it directly from them. And if you have read it and you liked it, please um, leave me a favor favorable review on Amazon or Goodreads if that would be in your joy too. I love hearing your feedback and your reviews help other people find this work. And the same is true for this podcast. If you like it, please consider leaving it a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, your reviews really do make a difference. And I am so grateful for each one of them. All right. With that, let's get on with the show, shall we? So I guess it's kind of fitting um, that I wanted to give a little bit more context about the land acknowledgement today, because on this episode, we're going to be diving into the topic of our relationship with land and how this relates to the sacred feminine. And my guest today is a friend. She's someone I admire deeply and someone I've learned a lot from about what it means to consider yourself a steward of land and the responsibility that comes with that. 
She's also one of the best connectors and community builders I know, which also feels super relevant to my own exploration of the sacred feminine, especially as we all collectively work to imagine systems that will nurture all of life and value all contributions. And so with that, let me introduce her to you now. Belinda Liu is a nature-inspired visionary, sacred land steward, and community builder. She creates beautiful products, spaces, and experiences that bring people back home to themselves. Home to themselves, home to her, home to us. I love it. Her superpowers are shining a light on people's strengths, bringing them out in the world, and creating life-changing tools and experiences for deep growth. She is a co-founder of Gratitude Blooming, a movement to explore the deep connections between nature and culture, as well as how to create a more beautiful world through art, gratitude, and self-inquiry. She's also the co-founder of the Hestia Retreat Center, located near majestic Mount Shasta in Northern California, a 10-acre retreat center intentionally designed to support rejuvenation, healing, and transformation. She's also a level three Reiki healer of people, land, and spaces, and she is joining us today from her office in Mount Shasta, California. Belinda, thank you so much for being with me today. Mm, Liz, you did such a great job explaining who I am. I think we're this is the show is over. It's done. That's it. Uh, That's it. <laughs> not a chance. No, 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 no. There's way too much that we have to talk about. I do like to tell guests though. That's one of my favorite things is writing like just their bio. I mean, you give me information, right? So I know what to say. But then, mm -hmm. um, I like reflecting people's goodness back to them. I think we should all get that from time to time, you know, like the good things we're doing in the world and you're certainly doing a lot. So mm, thank you for that gift. Mm -hmm. Well, I like to start the show always in the same place. And, you know, uh, so Belinda and I have known each other for a while and I realized as I was thinking about the questions for this, I don't know the answer to this question. So I am excited. <laughs> um, my listeners and I are going to learn together, but the first question I always you know, like to ask people is for them to share a little bit about their spiritual background. Um, and I do that because it's kind of an entryway into talking about this divine feminine. Did you get any of that in your, in your background or not? Um, and also I think it's an inquiry, interesting inquiry to think about were there things that were helpful that you pulled through or was it kind of like, I got nothing and I had to start over. So with that, I would love to hear just a little bit about, um, what your spiritual background was like growing up. Hmm. That's a beautiful question. And I have to say, I can't wait to hear for myself what emerges uh, just <laughs> sitting with that. Um, you know, so I'm originally from Taiwan. That is my homeland. And I moved to the US when I was five. And my cultural background is really Buddhist. And, um, you know, growing up in Taiwan, you would always see, you know, ancestral altars everywhere in restaurants everybody's house had one on the wall, you know, we always lit incense for our ancestors. And it felt very much like part of the culture, just because family was like center and core to our way of living. And I I don't know if I would associate that with spirituality per se, you know, especially mm -hmm. in the first like three decades of my life, I, I didn't really grow up with a particular spiritual direction. Um, I think, especially when we immigrated uh, to the United States, it was just so much about understanding the physical world and the culture of the physical world that was so different from what 
I had, you know, grown up with in Taiwan. And um, I think looking back, what I would would say is um, I started to develop a relationship with nature, um, I think through my mother. She was always this, you know, avid gardener. Um, there was always uh, the beautiful flowers and plants in the house. And um, I think in my adult life, you know, I started to go to nature, you know, almost instinctively um, when I needed to get out of my head or get out of myself. And I think what I've realized is it's these moments of being with a mountain, being with the trees, being with the plants that you start to realize, wow, there's so much more to life than um, the physical reality that we're in in the moment. And I think where it ties back to my cultural heritage is I think that has a lot to do with my female line. Mm. Um, you know, so I'm really grateful to my ancestors for, you know, imparting that in my blood almost so much so that I can't even consciously like explain it till now that it's just such a part of me. Um, my mother's side of the family has always been of the land. Um, they've always been, you know, farmers, uh, fishermen, um, gardeners, artists who capture nature. So it's interesting that I'm now seeing how I'm a product of of that lineage without even like trying. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. like it's just happening mm -hmm. uh, naturally. Wow. That makes so much sense knowing, and we'll talk about all this, but knowing what I know about you with your, you know, your work with the land and your work with nature through gratitude blooming and all that, that's super cool. Um, tell me about, was there a point in time when you became aware of this idea that I refer to as the sacred feminine? And we can talk about your language too, if that works for you or not. But was there a particular moment in time when you began to think about an aspect of divinity or your spiritual path, like being connected to this idea of the sacred feminine? I, I, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago or 15 years ago about this question, I probably wouldn't be able to unpack it in, in this particular way. Um, but in this moment now, what I've realized is, you know, what is the feminine? The feminine is the source of life. The feminine is this nurturing energy. Um, that, you know, something we may feel from our mothers or grandmothers or um, someone who's just really kind of loving us from the heart. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think I felt that really strongly uh, when I was in college. I traveled to, I studied abroad in South India. And then over the summer, I went to Nepal. And I remember uh, climbing these huge mountains and just feeling really held by them. And I think that was maybe the first time I really understood the sacred feminine in the magnitude that it was, it was like, wow, there is this larger body of, of land that is holding us all on this planet. And then there's this really kind of divine energy that you can't really explain with logic, but you can feel it in your heart when you're there, that is that like, you know, something else is holding us, something else is guiding us, something else is present with us. 
Um, so I, I think of that as like, you know, the divine mother, mm-hmm. the highest form of the feminine that's present, um, holding space for all of us, um, on this planet in this universe. Um, and, and it's been interesting to reclaim that within myself because, um, professionally, you know, every single prof- uh, professional personality work to, you know, work assessment I've ever taken, I've been hyper-masculine, you know, hmm. overachiever, uh, you know, planner, strategist, you know, things like that. I remember taking the Gallup strengths test in one of my nonprofit jobs. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot of doing in this, in this, uh, energy. And, um, it took uh, several years of realizing how that didn't really serve me to work and effort so much um, and that I needed to bring that nurturing back mm-hmm. and and learning from other people that had that quality and realizing actually that's that's in me too, but it's been so quiet and dormant for so long. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you could say more about that evolution too, you know, cause I know that you're, um, you know, even when you and I met, we, we actually met when we were both doing wildly different things. If you guys have listened to the show for a while, you know, that I've referenced this business career that I had and, um, you know, Belinda and, and my first real interaction was we had a, we had a mastermind group where we were working on our, our collective, um, our businesses together with another friend, you know, trying to support each other. I think much more in the way in which I operate now, you know, like really, I, I, I use the word spiritual and I'm using that as a, a catch-all for intentional perhaps like, you know, but I, so I think our mastermind was kind of headed towards perhaps where we, we are now, but it was still very rooted. We were, you know, we were rooted in the business world. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that evolution for, for you that you, you referenced of that. Um, I'm translating it as like being, you know, instead of just doing like being a doer, but also like being present and being held, like what, what was that like for you over those several years? Yeah. And I would say that, you know, coming from an immigrant background where, you know, you're, you're comfortably middle-class in the country that you're from, and then you come to the United States and you're basically the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, You know, my parents came for higher education and degrees, um, but that even, even just that reality puts you in a perspective of like, you've got to make it worth it, worth those sacrifices. So I think that has been in the background of my Mm. upbringing and, and then that plus this desire to succeed in the world in whatever way, you know, that meant. And for me, it's always been more socially, social change driven. You know, I went into um, a degree in career and education um, in my, you know, my my first uh, 10 years of working as I was a classroom teacher. I worked in nonprofit um, leadership, really trying to support teachers and leaders to do the tough work of, you know, really um, doing right by, by students. And I was working in these very um, diverse uh, environments uh, with lot, a lot of immigrants, a lot of English learners. And, and so it felt like that mission uh, was like so big that like, if, if I didn't wake up every day, you know, 150% in, in my tank and just doing the work, uh, you know, that I would, I was failing other people um, whose lives, you know, were at stake. It felt that big at the time, mm. you know, my twenties. And, um, 
And then after, you know, four years of like working like that, I, I started getting really tired and I, I think I started to ask questions and that's kind of the, you know, the late twenties, early thirties, the Saturn returns time when, when yeah. we all, you know, in our cycles start to wonder like, am I really on the right track? Like, is this as good as it gets? You know, that's like the first, like small, like, you know, midlife crisis that we experience. And, and I, and I, I just just realized I couldn't keep going like that anymore. And I actually met a leader who was in her 60s. She was a queer uh, Jewish woman who uh, grew up in South Africa. And she was so in touch with her spirituality. And at that time, I was I started to understand what spirituality really meant because I was a little bit um, turned off by religion. You know, I was just like not into that institution, but I was really drawn to this like 60-year-old woman who just like showed up in our nonprofit office and would have us like talk about like animal totems. And mm. and she was so comfortable uh showing up like that that I realized that like there could be another way. Mm. And I think that was the beginning of you know, reclaiming that part of myself you know, allowing that to show up in, in, in the work environment, which is like, I think super edgy when you're going through this identity shift. Oh yeah, totally. Um, well, and I, I want to kind of talk about where you are now too. So you, well, let's say, so I just want to fill in the gaps there. So you left, you, you went from that environment. Do you feel like it was sort of like a progression for you from I don't know. How would you describe it as an undoing, as a um, a revealing? I would say or... I I would say it was like a um, it felt like a series of initiations. Mm -hmm. You know, like you know, in your twenties, you have to kind of go through the more traditional uh, pathway sometimes to, because that's already there. That's set. You can see what that path is. There's even a map, a roadmap there, right? Yeah. And then at some point, it's like okay. I don't think I want to work like that. And so for me, and I, you know, I'm an Aquarius. So I'm like, once something doesn't work, I, I kind of like take the leap and I, and I go to the unknown and I let things happen. And, and what happened was I, I ended up um, taking a consulting role and I was like, you know, how do I still have time to really explore like what is it that I really want to do but also you know not worry about paying the bills so I ended up doing education consulting work and then on the other side I was really investing in um well what is my work and so the first iteration of that was doing a wellness app that helped people reflect on their you know the things that they care about their physical well-being their social well-being all these things and that was very tied to what I was doing in, in my nonprofit work was helping, you know, teachers reflect on their practice um, and realizing that what I wanted to do also needed to involve community because what I started to see was personal growth. You can't do that in a cave by yourself, seeing only yourself. You know, I think monks can do that really well. But if if you're a person that's in the world that has a mission to be in the world, um, you have to be in relationship. And so I evolved, you know, Liz, this was the time that we met. I evolved the the wellness app into a group learning platform online 
where we all, you know, we did these like online challenges, you know, exploring creativity and purpose and empathy and kindness and all these things. And, um, and, and that was powerful to, to, to learn and grow with other people and be mirrors for each other. Um, and I think along the way learning too, just like, how do I want to spend my time? When, when do I feel um, energized? When do I feel depleted? I feel like that was the time in our lives when we were starting to explore that as we were creating and birthing these big things Mm -hmm. is it was also like caring about like, well, how does that feel for me to do these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I don't, you know, this isn't really about me, but I do want to just interject this for the listeners. Cause I'm, and I just reflect to you, Melinda, that, uh, so when I, when we met, we actually met at like a, this, this event called wisdom at work. And, um, this was very, uh, it, it was close to, well, okay. So it was not long after I had kind of figured out like, aha, I think I'm here to explore this thing that I'm calling the sacred feminine. And I don't know what it is, but I, still own a consulting firm and I still have a lot of employees and clients and I've got a, you know, whoa, and I've got two kids now, one that's like a very little baby and the other's a toddler. And what am I going to do? I've got to keep going. And so I just, so my solution at the time, you know, rather than try to get out of that world, cause I wasn't ready to do that yet, um, was to try and start networking with people who were bringing this more intentional kind of thing to work. And so that's how I ended up at this event. And fortunately, I lived in the Bay Area of California where people were asking these questions at the time. It was a perfect place to be. And I just remember meeting you and some other people that, you know, we are still all a part of each other's lives now years later. And um, it was just such a mind blowing thing that there were people who were um, who wanted to explore these things like how do we show up at work and how do we how do we support each other in the best ways and lift each other up and not just for the service of the product and the commerce, but because we care about each other and because we are better when we are doing that. And when we are showing up as our full selves, it was just the most, it was like a radical idea to me, just radical and like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And then of course it also inspired me. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go do more of that and not in a business context, which here I am now. Um, but anyways, um, well, and I, and then I think for you, the land came calling for you. Did it not? Yeah. So it's interesting. I I feel like Liz, we were, we, we started asking these big questions of like, what, like, does work have to be like this? Like, does it have to feel this way? Do I have to shut a part of myself off to be able to do these things? And I think, you know, we both took the next step of being self-employed. So we had more freedom in some ways. And, and I think when you start asking those big questions, it sometimes it uncovers even more questions and it doesn't necessarily get easier. So, so what happened with me was um, I, I realized I was doing all these things for my passion and my love and my desire to see change in the world and I was kind of financing it with my other business, which was the education consulting work. And at one point I was just like, I don't think I can sustain these two buckets of things. Like I was still kind of, you know, you know, like Superman, like one, one life, you know, in one way and another life in another way. And I asked, finally, I was like, you know, I, I've got to 
surrender. Like if I'm meant to continue to do this type of work, there has to be some opportunity that makes it clear that I'm meant to do it. So it was this real surrender moment where I was like, I, I need something financially to support this work that I'm doing. That's beyond what I'm, you know, supporting for myself in, in this personal growth uh, work. And I actually met someone um, who I had met doing a Fulbright in China. And she was like, you know, I'm, I know this friend and there's this program in Santiago, Chile, um, you know, for entrepreneurs all over the world, you know, you can spend seven months there incubating a business idea. And I thought, wow, if, if I'm meant to continue with this work, then maybe this is the opportunity. So I literally met with the person and he, and, and got all this good ideas about the, the program. I went online. I'm like, what's the deadline? It was like two days from the day that I had first heard about it, scrambled to get all the application materials together. And, um, and then just waited. And I remember like a couple months later, I got this email. It's like, you know, congratulations. You know, now you're going to spend seven months in Chile. And and it felt like this sign of like, okay, keep on going. Like there's something here for you. You've, it's hard right now, but just, just take that next step. And um, what happened was... Uh, it, that time in Chile was kind of a reset. It was just like an opportunity to kind of exhale, stop hustling to like make enough money to pay the bills, to pay for this business, and just to just to focus on what it is that I wanted to create. And um, when I got back to California, um, one of the things I noticed was how hard it was to be in the city, uh, in the Bay Area again. And um, I noticed that I would to kind of balance myself, I would go to nature, like every single weekend, I would go to the trees to help ground myself. And, and, and the more that I found myself in nature, the more that I craved more of that time. And I think it goes back to that sacred feminine. When you're in this vulnerable place of transition in your life, you need to be held by something larger. And a friend of mine mentioned, you know, have you heard of this place called Mount Shasta? It's actually the root energy, the root chakra of the earth. If you need to be held by the, by the divine mother, if you need to be held by the earth, you need to go there to get grounded. And so I, um, on a whim, went there with a friend and spent seven days um, on this little canyon. There was like a mineral bathhouse and some like rustic cabins. And and that was the major turning point of my journey, I would say, because I started to really feel this invitation from the land in this little canyon. And there happened to be um, this A-frame house with a bridge and a creek. Uh, there was a big for sale sign, and then there was a big no trespassing sign. And I remember every time we would drive by the house, I would be like, let's stop. Let's take a break. Let's see if anyone's there. And and towards the end, we realized no one was living there. And we we stepped foot on the land. And and the first time, my feet planted on that ground, and touched the soil and felt the trees. I was like, I felt like I was coming home to myself. Mm -hmm. And I felt invited by the land, um, to be there. And it was I've never felt that before in that way. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And that land, of course, became Hestia, 
your retreat center, which you now have had for many years. I wonder if you could tell us why you chose the name Hestia. I'm guessing for some of my listeners, that name may sound familiar for you, but if not, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, sometimes uh, the naming can be really complex and, you know, you just have to spend so much time trying to figure out what the name is. Um, but for me, what was interesting was after setting foot on the land for the first time, I literally went back every single month. And this is like a four and a half hour drive from the Bay Area. So it's not a short trip. Um, and every single month I would go back, I would bring different people. I brought my partner, Peter, for the second month. The third month, I brought the friend that told me about Mount Shasta being this root chakra of the earth. And she was like, well, let's set an intention for this weekend. You know, let's pick some goddess cards to see if there's any, you know, guides for us. And I picked Hestia, uh, the Greek goddess of the flame, the family, the community, the hearth. And I remember reading about what she represented. And immediately it was like, oh, this is the land speaking to me and saying, this is what the intention of the land is. Are you up for this challenge or this invitation? And I feel like once I got that message from the goddess, I I started, I stopped doubting mm. that I was supposed to be there to to steward the land and be in relationship with the land. And and literally, you know, five by month five, we were um had put an offer in and 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 closed on 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 the place and you know and and started to celebrate and to start listening to what the land. Uh, wanted for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just having watched you do that for the last several years now, I wonder if you can, you know, I feel like this is a nice entry point to this idea of land stewardship. And I just love that the invitation to the land came from the goddess, you know, how, how appropriate, mm-hmm. and especially tying back into everything you said about when you were younger and feeling held by the land and, you know, that a kind of mother energy, um, just how appropriate that it was a goddess that invited you into that space. And, and so I wonder, because one of the things I've witnessed you do is, um, you know, anybody can buy a piece of property and be like, I'm going to make this a healing center. Not everybody, but you know what I mean? Like you're going to, uh, you know, but there's something different to me. I think when you say the words land steward, right? Like that's it. That's different than saying I own this land and I therefore can do with it whatever I want. So I maybe you could just talk a little bit about the idea of land stewardship, what that means, and and also if that has evolved for you in your last several years of of playing this role. Yeah, I think what was really beautiful about the, you know, this experience in, you know, started in 2014, so it's now eight been 8 years was the place of innocence that I was coming from. You know, I think it really was this place of, I don't know what's going to happen. This feels crazy, but I still am going to take this leap because it's such a strong yes in my body. And, And initially we thought it was just this strong desire to just be in nature like more. And we had no idea what was going to come from that. And but one of the things that was very clear from the beginning was just it's it's a steep listening. And so what I would do is just walk the land every time I was there and I would just listen and notice, you know, what what the land was speaking to me. And 
initially it was just about observation. It was just, can you come back every time and see what's here and be aware of seasons and change? And um, the creek that was flowing in front of the land was always communicating this message of like, can you be in flow? Can you, can you surrender like me? And um, there wasn't much doing like initially, it was just more watching and seeing, you know, what would happen if we brought friends here? I remember Liz, when you came for the first time and, and one of the things that I saw was there wasn't much that I needed to do or to orchestrate or to create or to manage or to facilitate even. It was just allowing the land to connect with each person. And over time, what I saw was, wow, like huge insights can come for people when they just have that sacred space to be with themselves and to listen and to have the divine mother speak directly to them. And after four years, you know, more and more people would come and we we were hosting people in our A-frame house. And um, I noticed the living room started to get a little cramped and um, it felt like at that point, it was like a critical threshold of like, you know, what, what are you going to do now? And I remember walking the land one day and just feeling into it and, 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 and starting to see a vision for, oh, there could be more space for people to be here. And that, that was my divine and sacred responsibility was to create that space. And it wasn't, until that moment that um, I got a, an invitation to do that. And before it almost felt like, you know, I needed to just stay in my lane and take care of what was already there. Um, but then, you know, half, you know, four years in, it was like, okay, now is the time. And, and I'm so grateful that we waited for that divine time to happen before, um, you know, doing, adding anything else to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the words that are coming to mind for me are relationship building and how I think that, I don't know if you would say the same thing, Belinda, but I know for me, I I hadn't, I could think about, well, it takes time to build relationship with people, right? You just meet somebody once. And sometimes we have that like immediate connection of like, ah, yes, I have known you somewhere before and we can go right there to the depth. But sometimes it, it takes time to build that trust and, um, but I don't know that people always think about that in terms of relationship with land that, and I know that's something that's been uh, driven home for me where I live now in Virginia. Like my first impression when I walked on this land was that it had been a really long time since anyone and particularly a white person had actually stopped and noticed the land and had just been with it. So there was a the thing that I sensed coming from the land, whether or not I'm projecting on it or not, was a hesitation of like, wait a minute, like we don't know each other yet. Why don't you just take your time, <laughs> sit down a little bit and see what's here, and then we can move into relationship. And I would say that took, you know, I've been here two years now. And I mean, the the the, the first full year, I, I, I would say I felt hesitancy from the land. Um and so what I love what you, you're talking about is that that listening to the land is to me, it implies that there is a sacred agreement. There is a sacred relationship between you and the land. It is a living thing. 
full of living things. Everything's alive. And um, that we have to honor that relationship before we really do anything. I mean, does that, does that feel right to you? Yes. And how do we pay attention and learn that language, right? Because we're not speaking in the way that Liz, you and I are speaking. It's a, it's a subtle prime. I feel like it's primordial language where, you know, and I had to learn it. um, And I, you know, I've, I had to learn it just through being so present, you know, like when I would walk the land um, to ask, you know, what is it, what does it want of me, you know, in each, at each point, um, it was a very subtle kind of conversation where, you know, at times if it was, uh, you know, a yes or an openness, I would feel this kind of expansion in my body. And at times, you know, other times it felt like there was a more contracted feeling and, and there were very specific questions I would ask, you know, there was this, uh, shack that was already on the land by the creek, kind of down um, the path from our our house. And, you know, I had always dreamed of having a yurt. I love round spaces. I love the circular, simple. Um, and at one point I was like, you know, maybe we should just put a yurt here. And I remember going to the cabin and uh, the shack and asking, you know, do you want to be a circular structure? <laughs> Can we put a yurt here? And every time I would go, I would just feel this contraction in my body and that almost felt like a no, um, energetic no from the land. And and after a while, I was like, okay, you know, let me know, give me a sign. Let me know what then what I should do, you know, or what you want, how you want the space to be. And and one day I I walked over and it's and I got this word resurrection. And I was like, oh, this shack wants to be. A cabin like it was, you know, back, you know, years ago. And so I do think that there is this um, conversation that can happen, but it's very subtle. It's nonverbal. And, um, and, you know, in this day and age of, you know, we all talk, we talk a lot about consent, right? Like, how often do we ask the land for consent? Because we don't know how to communicate. And so that has been a big part of my awareness and also what, to me, what it means to be a land steward is the deep presence, the deep listening and the asking for consent. You know, when, when an idea emerges, it's like, is it because I really want this because I have this vision that I'm really attached to, or is it because this is, you know, what the land is wanting of me. And that's a really hard. And you oftentimes also have to rely on other people to, to check, like, are we calibrate? Am I calibrating correctly with what the land is wanting? And I think that's the other part is, you know, building a community of people that are speaking that language with the land and that you can kind of check in with. And I feel like we did that a lot, Liz, with the um, women's circles that we were part of on the land. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so much comes up for me as you're talking about that. And one question I have for you is, was it, was it hard for you to trust those answers initially? Like, did you, you know what I mean? Did you, was there doubt that I, am I actually in communication with the land here or am I, you know, 
telling myself stories or, or was it just a natural? Cause I think there's a lot of times if we don't have that in our lives, we tend to doubt that communication, right. Or we question ourselves or is this real? And so I'm, I'm curious if you had any of that, at least at the outset. I think I was in such a ripe and open time of my life. I was, you know, very much still in kind of a transitional point. I, I think I was more open to receiving um, new ways. Um, and I, I think there was, uh, there were points where I was like, am I, um, you know, am I crazy for, for, you know, listening like this, or am I making this stuff up? And what would happen is I would just say to myself, well, if this keeps coming back over and over again, then I, I need to trust that this is what it is. And I think that became kind of my rule of thumb is, if it's, you know, if this is coming into, into my mind or my consciousness, like once, and then it goes away, maybe that's not so relevant, but if, if I keep getting these different signs and I, I feel like it was like a little bit of a scavenger hunt, like following these like cosmic breadcrumbs of, um, you know, of insight and, and clues for what to do next. And, and it, and it's really interesting when, when I started to open myself up to that, the it would they would show up pretty 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 consistently um so yeah it, it there was a little bit of the doubting but then it was also like this is this is coming back again like why is that you know and and almost trying to calm the mind a little bit around that like under trying to understand and just um accepting opening receiving which is you know so much of the sacred feminine Oh, totally. And I'm, I'm actually <laughs> remembering to something you said to me. Um, I, we were, we were in Oakland, um, in the Bay area. And I, I remember telling you of like, oh my gosh, I feel like I have to, I have to sit in meditation for like 30, 45 minutes to just like get quiet to, you know, to, to hear the, the inner guidance. And I remember you just saying, well, or maybe you need to be somewhere else. <laughs> maybe you need to be in nature. Maybe it doesn't have to be so hard. I was like, oh yeah. Cause you, people think of, I thought of the Bay area as a very progressive place and, and, you know, ideas wise, it absolutely is, but there, but it's just, you know, you're talking about city energy, just like any, anywhere else. There's a lot of cerebral, a lot of of the head kind of stuff going on. And there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise, literal noise and, um, you know, head noise. And so I think that maybe it gets easier. You know, I know that's what I've experienced at, at your place, um, that it, it gets easier to listen to that when you are, when you're in nature too, you can, you know, it's still subtle, but the voice gets louder. Yeah. Because the clutter isn't as there as much. That's so. That's such a good reminder of of that time. Like I, I think, you know, when we're in places where there's a a pretty strong culture that's established, it's hard to kind of break free from that. And I think looking back now, I realized I was wayfinding to find a new way of living for myself, a new way of creating. Um, by being in nature more and less in, you know, the culture of the Bay Area, which is very much, uh, you know, 10x growth kind of energy, right? And like, yes. and at the time, I was still trying to figure out, well, what is this personal growth web application supposed to be like? And, and I was really, and I would go to the land to really work through some things. And what was crazy, or maybe not so crazy was 
what I realized being on the land and doing that kind of work was how out of alignment I was in some ways working with technology because um, in many ways, I think my work is meant to be physical, tangible, um, you know, visual, um, you know, less, you know, online and, and so it, it was interesting because it led to this realization, like, I don't, I, th I don't think I'm meant to be creating something of using technology as a tool. That's just not my essence and going to the land and being so physical and so tactile, um, helped me realize that. And, and it came, it just was such clarity. Like if you're supposed to create a new way of being and even creating in a new kind of way of creating, you have to get out of the old ways to be able to feel a new way, feel through, feel your way through a new way. Cause it's like still very uncertain what that new way is. Yes, totally. I also just wanted to name this too, um, as you were describing, you know, listening to the land. And when I was doing the research for my book, um, there was a practice in, um, Northern Europe, probably not just Northern Europe, I'd have to go back to my notes now, um, but a practice called sitting out where you would just go, you know, the women, the witches would go and just sit. They would just go sit on the land and communicate with the land. They would listen and, and they would, they would share, they would take their questions. Um, and of course there was a whole thing where, you know, the, the Catholic church really went bonkers, like even telling people they couldn't, that, you know, you're not allowed to stare into a pool of water because you might be getting spiritual answers that they want you to get within the church. This is a true thing. Um, but it also makes me think about what you were saying in the beginning about your ancestral line, like, right. I think these indigenous practices that people have are unique to their place and they also have a through line. And so it makes me wonder about your own ancestral people and the relationships that they might've had with the land. I don't know if the research actually exists, you know, or what, if there were people in what we now know as Taiwan who were sitting out, but I would imagine that there were whatever they called it and whatever that practice was. Yeah, I mean Taiwan is um two-thirds mountainous and uh has we have a lot of indigenous tribes in Taiwan, which is you know something that a lot of people probably don't know. And um and I would I have to imagine that all of our ancestors, you know, because of our survival, um basic survival needs, we were looking to nature to understand, you know, how are we gonna feed ourselves this next season and and um, also looking at the stars to understand what, you know, what was, what was happening um, with time. And, um, and I would say, you know, if you had asked me like 15 years ago or 10, I, what I would be doing, I would not have expected that I'd be talking to you about being a land steward and, and nature being, um, the medium and the like core of my work. But um, I think it is this almost a sacred responsibility that I feel um, now um, also being able to trace it back to my maternal line that, Oh, um, this is something that wants to be brought back into modern life. Um, but let's not just replicate what our ancestors did. Let's figure out what makes sense for this 
time. And um, I remember yeah. there being a spot on the land that Liz, you and I would go to. It's now the heart chakra of our of our land, and it, we you know called it the ancestral grove. There's a, a big circular grove of trees, and I you know that would be another place that I would sit um, and just feel and connect with the ancestral wisdom and um, ask for guidance. And it's just interesting how sometimes just doing that simple act of like stopping and being and noticing can create the massive insights that then help us with whatever it is that we're struggling with. Like I remember, you know, when I would go through that uncertainty in the cities, I would just navigate it by trying to strategize or plan even more, you know, like that was my like mechanism. And I was like, wait, there could be another way. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Well, and now I, I would love to hear you just talk too. So, um, so yeah, I, I know the story of Hestia because I've been there. So I know that that, you know, resurrection happened, the cabin was there. And then over time, um, you know, other structures have been added. Right. And I assume that that was also, you know, part of that listening process. Um, but I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit too about some of the other elements that have made those possible, like you talked about community. Um, but I've also seen you with Hestia really, um, working at like this forefront of what I think of as like this paradigm shift where how are we going to, um, we can all sit around and talk all we want about cultures of domination and hierarchy and um, how profit rules all. But what does it actually mean to try and live your life? You know, it's it shifting that paradigm. And I feel like in the growth, this gradual and thoughtful expansion of Hestia, I've also seen you kind of working with that paradigm shift. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I love that we're in this day and age where people are returning back to the land. Like so many people are wanting to be land stewards and and live more in nature. And and it definitely is powerful and beautiful. And it's also a lot less romantic than like what, what I see on my Instagram <laughs> feeds. I'm like, oh my god, it is so much work in in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, I think in the beginning, you know, we were experimenting with urban and city living, or urban and rural living, kind of going back and forth. So for the first four years, it was just, you know, how do we take care of the land as it is and and feel the subtle shifts and more dramatic shifts of like living across these two different, very different realities. And it was very like pol- polar opposite kind of feelings. Um, and and you know renting the house as a way to financially support what we were doing and and you know just just doing it that way like you know the vacation rental models that you kind of see right now and then over the years you know starting in 2018 i really felt like this shift in wanting to live more on the land and trying to unpack you know what 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 that meant and i think the more time that that i spent that we spent there um, we started to see what was possible and, um, you know, initially, you know, also holding space for large retreats and that being kind of one financial model for, you know, supporting, um, the land. And, and I felt like at that time it was like, 
you know, you're supposed to just learn from working with these large groups and seeing how does the land respond? It was very much like a science experiment in some ways. And what I saw over time was that there was this depth that if we could get to this depth of people that could spend more time there or, or have the land be the center of their experience, um, more transformation, more possibilities for what they could um, receive was greater. And it also was more life-giving for the land, you know, not for it to just be lodging, but for it to be a place that was seen and honored and people would come and for that. So almost it became like this living temple space that you could be with the sacred, but you could also sleep with the sacred and you could eat with the sacred. And so once, and so back in 2019, we started to like more formally establish ourselves um, on the land, which meant that we needed to create more spaces and more structures. And um, when COVID hit, we were able to get some, you know, government relief funds to build a, a 20 foot yurt. And, um, and prior to that in 2018, um, my partner, Peter and I had our sacred union. And instead of having like a registry, we had um, friends and family just contribute to a fund for this year that we were all going to be in for the actual sacred union. Um, and then we had another community member who received a lot of healing from being on the land for many years, who want who just donated a 22 foot uh, Mongolian yurt. And so it's just interesting how that just kind of started to happen. And I think it was the ethos of Hestia you know, of the community, of the hearth. And um, and then at one point, I really started to see how, as more people were spending longer time on the land, how it could be a place for creativity, for birthing new paradigms and visions. Um, it, it was incredible to watch people have a light bulb moment and then go off and create something, you know, after they you know, left the land. And, um, but, you know, there was this challenge of financing of, you know, if we wanted to create a couple more yurts, so there would, could be these residencies, how could we do it? And there were a couple moments in, in our, in our path where there were community members who were like, you know, if you ever wanted us to build something here, or we'd love to spend more time here, um, please let us know. And so, um, we were like, well, what would it take to finance three yurts through the community? And I have to say that was a really edgy thing that, you know, it's hard to ask people for money <laughs> in oh, <yeah>. whatever form. <laughs> oh yeah. And, um, and we had just built the 20 foot yurt in, and so we kind of had an idea of how much it would cost. And so we started to just imagine, well, what would, what would make it exciting for the people if we were to ask them to finance this, you know, instead of relying on a bank what if we relied on our community? And um, we came up with a proposal of, you know, um, it was about $30,000 that it took to build the 20 foot year. Um, what if we could have a five year um, partnership and um, people would receive, you know, half of the profits every year for five years, and then they would be able to spend up to four months um, on the land, because that was really the desire that we were hearing was like, people wanted to have more time uh, with the land. And so because of that, um, so we got, you know, three different groups 
uh, to invest in those three uh, yurts. And because of that, we were able to, uh, over the winter, our rest period on the land have, uh, you know, four month residents or people that would, you know, stay longer to really incubate in over the winter, their visions. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't have been possible um, without the community support. Um, because this is also kind of literally out of the box, right? Like most banks are not going to finance these like non-permanent structures. It's Never. not a house, you know? And so we really kind of were pushed to think differently about how to even do that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the word that just keeps coming up for me as you're talking two words, it's just, okay. Three words. It's just like radical faith or trust, you know, I could just substitute faith or trust, but, and that is such a, that feels like a lesson of the, for me, it's been a lesson of the the feminine that being held by the land. Um, and also it's just really, it's hard, right? Like it, cause it's so counter to the way we, we tend to work. Like we tend to Okay. I won't say we, I'll say I, but the way I tend to work, which is like, well, let me just work out my, just like you were referencing, let me just work out my strategic plan. This is what I want to happen. So now I'm going to write down all the steps and the way it's going to get there. And I'm going to put a timeline on it. Cause if I don't put a timeline on it, it's not going to get done, you know? And, and this feels like, as you're talking about it, like it, it requires this radical trust that a different vision can come in, that it it's maybe it comes in in its own time. And then at the same time, the way you're talking about the relationship with the land, there's like a softness when I say radical trust that feels very edgy. But then when I think about that being held by the land, there's like a softness that comes in, which is like, of course, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but of course you can, you can trust in this. You can trust in the land. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the land is probably the most tangible form of the divine that we have in front of us that we can see and touch and feel and and um you know if if I were to just orchestrate my life from what I know there's no way I, this vision could have happened there was no way that I was going to be like oh I'm going to live four and a half hours away in some rural place that I've you know have no idea about and then have to build community from here and I mean, it just would have sounded very inconvenient, you know, it would have been, mm. I mean, I thought I was going to be building community in the Bay Area and living in the city and going for my hikes in the Redwoods on the weekends and, and the universe had a different plan. And it was such a, it's a, was a much beautiful, more beautiful, bigger plan than I could have ever imagined. Because now that I've seen what's possible, it's creating this ripple effect of like, well, what else is possible, you know? And, and I think the side story is, you know, what, you know, I was telling you all, like, you know, I was thinking I was going to work in technology and this was the way of creating and pushing and accelerating, you know, personal growth was through this, you know, group learning platform. And um, even that kind of doing that work in parallel with bringing people to the land, I, I saw like how much more possibility there was for people to get those insights very quickly um, in a short amount of time just on sacred land versus, you know, 
the mental work of being online and doing, and that's also has a lot of value too. It's both are important. It's just more like, what am I here to serve? And it was interesting because the technology of all the things that we tried within the technology, the beauty of that was we got to try different modalities, you know, and what I found was gratitude was the, actually the entry point that I wanted to serve for, for groups. And that became um, what gratitude blooming is now, which is, you know, using the intuition of the plants um, and using art as a way to create this new narrative for ourselves and that being a physical tool for people to connect with, with nature. I think that can take so many different forms. We can live in cities and still remember that sacred relationship. It might be a little bit harder to do at times, but that's also very possible. And I think it's just this opening up of I surrender to, to a bigger possibility for my life that then can create so many different pathways that like we cannot plan or strategize for. It just, we just need to be open enough and curious enough to like let it happen. Um, so that, I think that what's been the biggest awakening for me is like, Oh, and that's how we're going to create the new world that all of our hearts are yearning for, because we know this old one is not going to stand the test of time and it's just crumbling. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's so good. Okay. So we're, we're running out of time. Um, There's so much more we could talk about. I want to make sure you reference gratitude blooming quickly. Um, Belinda has created a beautiful set of Oracle cards. My family has been using them for years. Um, and, uh, that are really about merging this, you know, gratitude and deep self-inquiry with nature and what we see in the world around us. And so, um, I want to make sure to go check this out in the show notes. And she's also hosts a really beautiful podcast that explores the themes that are present in the in the Oracle cards. And, um, I want to make sure all that's in the show notes, because I think you guys should check that out. And if you have time, Belinda, I just, I'd love to ask you one more question, which is, um, you know, and again, like let's couch this in the language of that radical trust and understanding that, that this bigger vision can be revealed to you over time, but where is your vision now? Like right now, like, what are you seeing is possible at this moment for where you go? I guess with either of those projects or both or whatever, but with the land stewardship, with gratitude blooming, with your work in general in your life. I think we're in a massive inflection point in, of humanity where we all are, whether we like it or not, we are all having to be wayfinders um, in in uncertainty and the unknown. And I feel that the most common a simplest way to find our way is through this relationship with nature that, you know, nature is biodiverse, nature self-corrects, nature finds harmony and balance it's in its own way, despite us humans. And so then how can we really tune into nature to understand like the cycles of life? When is it time to step in? When's it time to step back? When's it time to move quickly? When's it time to rest? And so for me, I'm I'm just radically about, well, how do we get as many people as possible in communion with the sacred that is nature? And um, 
I think with the Hestia Retreat Center, what I'm seeing is these energy spots on on the planet are are here to help accelerate um, our transformation. And so, my what I'm seeing is a network of eight sacred sites locations where community can flow. So not just um, these, these ley lines exist already. They're already connected on the earth. It's just like the humans, are we coherent enough to, to be uh, stewards of these places? And that's really what I imagine is growing an intergenerational community of people um, all over the world where we can go to these different places to um, commune with the land in different ways. Like Mount Shasta is beautiful for visioning, clarifying, aligning, grounding. It's like this type of like line energy, you know, up and down Mm -hmm. and across, you know, I've been traveling to the big Island of Hawaii and finding that there is this very expansive energy there. And the land is so fertile, you know, the mangoes just grow and grow and grow. And so how do we work with abundance with the sermon? That's a whole totally different kind of different kind of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, Glastonbury, England is such a heart opening place. Um, so how what would it look like if we did our inner work in communion with these different sacred sites and really honoring these points on the planet and also learning how to exchange with each other in different ways as we grow together? Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a beautiful vision. I hold that with you. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm excited to hear how that, how that all is going to unfold for you. Um, and I'm just wishing we had more time. I feel like this went really fast. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll have to come back. You'll have to come back and give us an update. And um, yeah, if we could, I don't know, we've got a lot of other stuff we could cover. Um and I'm excited for you, Liz, to be on our podcast very soon. We'll be talking about the gratitude blooming theme of harmony and balance, which is a big one mm-hmm. for these times. Oh yeah, I know that that will be fun. So I'll I'll have to put that out there. I don't you know don't tend to talk about it on the show, but you've got to follow me on social media if you want to find out about that stuff. But um, yeah, and I just I want to thank you so much for your time, Belinda, and for sharing your insights and your journey. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to know you and I'm grateful that you are, you know, were willing to share this with listeners too. It's really wonderful. I'm grateful for the community that you're building, Liz, and to, and so in awe of how it's growing and expanding in the world and, and this is such an important focus. It's like how do we reclaim that sacred feminine so we can be in harmony and balance at this time. Yeah. Such a rich inquiry too. Mm. Well, and I want to thank all of you guys for listening as always. Um, If you like the show, you can give it a good review. You can tell your friends about it. You can subscribe. You can do all those things. And um, I will make sure you know how to find out all about Belinda, all of her. So let me just let you have tell people real quick, like social media, where to, where to find you. And I'll put that in the show notes too, but. So um, for the retreat center, you can find us at hestiamagic.com, H-E-S-T-I-A magic.com. And to get your gratitude blooming Oracle cards, go to gratitudeblooming.com. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for being here. And until next time, um, take really good care of yourselves and I'll talk to you again soon.
Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.